This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you delight in us, that you rejoice over us with singing, and we pray that you would call us to repentance and to rejoice in you always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So this Sunday marks the beginning of the third week of Advent, and you may have noticed, as I mentioned in the children's talk already, kind of gave it away, didn't I, that the candle in the Advent wreath is a different color this week, pink instead of purple. And that's because this Sunday is sometimes called Gaudete Sunday, or Rejoice Sunday. And notice that our reading from Paul today begins, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. The reason for this, as we've been saying from the pulpit, is that Advent is a time of waiting in the darkness. It is a time of the year where we are close to the wounds of the world, close to the wounds in our own hearts, and aware in a particularly acute way of the sin of the world and of our own participation in it. And midway through this season, we need to be reminded that all is not lost, that the world is not so lost that it cannot be found by God, that the world is not so broken that the one who made it cannot repair and restore it. I'm often reminded on Advent 3 of a powerful moment in The Two Towers, the second volume of Lord of the Rings. Okay, just going to say it. I'm going to nerd out for a second. 51 Sundays out of the year, I resist Lord of the Rings references so you can humor me just this one Sunday of the year. There's this moment where Frodo and Sam are making their lonely way to Mordor and they're on the road to Osgiliath and they take rest in land that's been conquered by the enemy and it's decaying. And it, it once belonged to the ancient kings of the West and the sun is setting and the last rays illuminate a statue of one of those kings, and the statue's been defaced and ruined by orcs or some other unnamed enemy. And Tolkien writes this, The years had gnawed it, and violent hands had maimed it. Its head was gone, and in its place was set in mockery a round, rough-hewn stone, rudely painted by savage hands in the likeness of a grinning face with one large red eye in the midst of its forehead. Suddenly caught by the last sunbeams of the day, Frodo saw the old king's head. It was lying rolled away by the roadside. Look, Sam, he cried, startled into speech. Look, the king has got a crown again. The eyes were hollow and the carven beard was broken, but about the high stern forehead there was a coronal of silver and gold. A trailing plant with flowers like small white stars had bound itself across the brows as if in reverence for the fallen king. Here's what Frodo says. They cannot conquer forever. And then suddenly, the brief glimpse was gone. The sun dipped and vanished, and as at the shuddering of a lamp, black night fell. On this Sunday, we're still waiting in the darkness for the light of his appearing. This world is God's good creation, but it has been defaced and desecrated by sin. And like that statue of the king, we human beings were created as the pinnacle of God's good creation. We were created with glory and magnificent artisanship. But that glorious work has been vandalized and we can hardly recognize ourselves as he fashioned us. But hope arises from the dust like that thin, barely visible garland of flowers around the king's head. 
sin and death will not conquer forever because God has acted decisively in Christ to conquer them in his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and his promise to return at the end of this age. And to quote Tolkien one more time, when he comes again in his glory and his righteousness, he will make all the sad things come untrue. And this week we are urged to wake up and remember that hope. Don't forget this Sunday tells us that though we live amidst great darkness with wars and rumors of wars and cancer and loneliness and broken relationships between children and parents and financial worries all around us, God has already done something about the darkness. In the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, which, by the way, is a profound work of theology, God has already initiated his great rescue operation to save his creation. The prophet Zephaniah tells us today that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He has not forgotten us and all is not lost because the Lord sees us and loves us. There is almost no more tender passage in scripture which expresses God's love for his people than this one from Zephaniah today. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You might think that's kind of like a cliched CCM song, except it's in the Bible. Our God is not a tyrant. He is a lover. He's not waiting upon us to turn to him so he can save us. He is already pursuing us in the darkness of our lives. And when we turn to him, we discover that he was already there before us, delighting over us, singing over us. And therefore, because God delights in his people, there is no greater thing that any human being can do than to dedicate him or herself to delighting in the God who delights in us. Scientific humanism and expressive individualism won't do. They aren't good enough. They are not robust enough foundations to build a life upon or a community upon. My favorite novelist, Walker Percy, says, this life is too much trouble, far too strange to arrive at the end of it and then be asked what you make of it and have to answer scientific humanism. That won't do. A poor show. Life is a mystery. Love is a delight, and therefore I take it as axiomatic that one should settle for nothing less than the infinite mystery and the infinite delight, i.e. God. In fact, I demand it. I refuse to settle for anything less, and neither should we this morning. And the prophet Zephaniah knows this, and so he says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So next week, our, our gospel reading is the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, but you won't hear it because we'll have lessons and carols at this service, which is also a delight. And by the way, that service is a wonderful one to invite all your non-Christian friends to. The readings and the hymns simply but powerfully convey the whole story of the gospel, and the basic thrust of the service is evangelistic. But I digress. <laughs> Because next week is Lessons and Carols at the service, I feel absolutely zero compunction in ransacking the sermon I would have preached on those, on those week's readings for this week. Mary's Magnificat is the fulfillment of this passage in Zephaniah because a faithful daughter of Zion will sing for joy because the Lord has come into the world to seek and to save the lost. 
And the angel Gabriel has announced the intention of God to rescue this world and to crush the head of that ancient serpent through the fruit of Mary's womb. And Mary, this young, vulnerable woman of valor, says, let it be unto me as you have said. And Mary is the paradigm for all Christian discipleship. The goal of our lives should be to say back to God, let it be unto me as you have said. Mary's name is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Miriam. Do you know that? Luke means us to understand Mary as another and greater Miriam, just as Jesus is another and greater Moses. Just as Moses led God's people through the Red Sea, delivering them from death, from the churning of the waters, and from slavery at the hands of Pharaoh, so Jesus leads his people in a second and greater exodus from even more terrible enemies, from the darkness of this world, from our own sinfulness, and from the power and might of Satan himself. And just as Miriam, daughter of Zion, rejoices at the victory of God over the iron chariots of Pharaoh and the deliverance of the Israelites, so too Mary, the true daughter of Zion, sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. He has mercy on all those who fear Him in every generation. He is a lover rejoicing with singing over all who have given their hearts to him. His rescue operation is for you and for me this morning. If we have put our trust in him, this passage is directed at us. We are his treasured possession, and he rejoices over us with singing. This exodus from sin, death, and the devil has really begun in Christ, and our call is to wake up to it, to live as though this were really true. John the baptizer this morning foretells the coming of this exodus in our gospel reading. And man, what a juxtaposition, right? Zephaniah, John the baptizer. The New Testament, the New Testament tells us over and over again that a new age has begun in Christ and John the baptizer is the foreteller of that age. The former things are passing away. The age of the reign of sin and death is coming to an end, and the age of the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, is beginning and in fact has already begun in Christ. And as the age of the Messiah dawns, we learn through his prophets that God's love and God's justice are intertwined. God's love for his people is unshakable, but that also means that when God comes to rescue his precious creation, he must sweep away all the sin and the devastation that sin has wrought. His judgment must fall upon all those idols that we have clung to that keep us from acknowledging him, that keep us from, as Paul says, rejoicing in the Lord always. And this is a principle established throughout the prophets that when God begins to act to restore his people and his creation, the first thing that comes is judgment. This beautiful passage in Zephaniah, which tells us the deepest truth about God's heart for his people is preceded by a terrible passage of judgment. And listen to how the book of Zephaniah begins. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. There you hear it. 
God's rescue operation for his creation requires that God put to death the idols that cause the wicked to stumble, that we cling to for our security, for our meaning, and for our status, instead of rejoicing in him always. God's judgment always comes first when God begins to act. But God's judgment is not the end of the story. And his judgment is always in the service of his love. When we move to the New Testament, we see again that God's love for this world and Jesus is preceded by the rough ministry of John. The one sent to prepare the way is, I think it's safe to say, a tough hombre. He wears these coarse clothes and he eats this spare diet of locusts and honey. I imagine he's just got like straw all over his hair, wild-eyed and just furious. And I can imagine that one would not soon forget an encounter with this towering and formidable ascetic. And this man is a message. Wake up. John the baptizer is saying, your evil works are being exposed. His winnowing fork is in his hand. The axe is already laid to the root of the tree. Everything is going to burn. Don't imagine that you're safe, he tells the Israelites, because you have Abraham for your father. Your ancestor, your ancestry and your pedigree can't save you. God can raise up sons of Abraham out of these stones. And all of the evils you've come to accept in your own life because you thought the Lord did not see are about to be revealed to the light. Everything hidden is going to be revealed. To the tax collectors who were notorious for graft and extortion, he says, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. To the soldiers who were well known for violence and oppression, he tells them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. John ministers like the psalmist in Psalm 50. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But now I arraign you and set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. That's the message of John. John's is a ministry of judgment. For that reason, actually, John is the character who I think best sums up and represents this season of Advent. Judgment is the first word that must be spoken in the redemption of God, but it is not the last word. The last word is Christ among us, robing himself in our flesh, that he might transform our flesh to worship God and rejoice in him always. But the hard truth of Advent is the requirement that we tell the truth about the darkness of this world and about the darkness of our own hearts. Everything hidden will be revealed. Every idol will be destroyed, burned up in the fire because God's love demands that his church be set free from the idols that we have set up in his place. Fleming Rutledge says about John when he appears on the banks of the Jordan offering a baptism for repentance, the cover-ups have come to their appointed end. John preached a baptism for repentance. John is saying, wake up, this messianic age is coming. And Jesus says of John that among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He is the greatest of that former age. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And the rest of the New Testament says, hey, wake up. The age to come has already begun in Jesus The message of the New Testament is, don't think you live in ordinary times. We don't. We live on the frontier of the turning of the ages. Everyone who follows Christ lives in the contested space between the former age and the age to come. 
And in this battle between the ages, the former age and the age to come, it is at the frontier where the fighting is fiercest. As Christians, we should expect this age to be dark. We should expect our lives to be full of resistance and conflict. Do not think that if we follow Christ, we will live our best lives now. The American hope for personal peace, autonomy, and affluence is one that every Christian should be wary of. Frankly, if that is our hope, it is a hope for which God is completely unnecessary. And in itself, that is a reason to doubt that it could ever be a truly Christian hope. What does God want from us? That we should rejoice in him always. I say again, rejoice. If our hope is for something other than eternal communion with God, we will eventually find the inconveniences of following God introduces things that enter our life that are too much of a burden for us to bear. It's hard to rejoice in God when we have reposed our trust in many other things, in sex, money, power, status, ease. These are all competitors for our loyalty to God. Okay, I've come to think over the past couple of years that stand-up comics are the last truth-tellers in America. The stand-up stage is the last place where we allow the idols of our age to be mocked. And I've sort of become obsessed recently with a comedian, Neil Brennan. I don't recommend you go watch him. He's pretty vulgar, et cetera, et cetera. But my buddy Kevin, who's a pastor in Kansas City, put me on to him. And, uh, and he texted me the other day to say that his friend uh, Saul Brennan uh, do stand-up live in Philly. And he said his favorite joke of the night was this. Did you know atheism is really a white privilege thing? Sir, can we interest you in an afterlife? No, I'm good. This is all working for me fine. This is all here for me. That's real. And can I be real for a second in this penitential season of Advent? The 20th century was a crazy century because the century, when the century began, 80% of the world's Christians lived in the West. But by the end of that century, 80% of the world's Christians lived in the global South. And that's partially because of Christian decline in the West, but mostly it's because of the unprecedented growth of Christianity in the global South. And my sense is that Christians who live in the global South, who live much closer to chaos and suffering than, than do the elite Americans who run the strong institutions that tell us what we should long for is the good life, are able to read Zephaniah and Paul with greater appreciation than most of us can. And I read an article yesterday which shook me to the core. Presbyterian pastor Tim Keller posted a letter that was written by the Chinese pastor Wang Yi of Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China, who was arrested Sunday, December 9th, along with several others from his church, and they were all charged with inciting to subvert state power. Knowing that he was likely to be arrested, this pastor wrote a letter to his congregation that was to be published by the church after 48 hours of his detention. And in that letter he says, as a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel my teaching and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. I want to invite you to pray with me this week for Pastor Wang Yi, for Early Rain Covenant Church and for the persecuted church all over the world. But I want to invite us this morning as well to hear his words. Here is a man who has suffered and who will suffer for the gospel. And he is willing to do so because everything hidden has been revealed to this man. And his heart has been liberated from idols. He has the one thing necessary, 
He has been set free to experience the unfathomable love of that glorious king. He hears the Lord rejoicing over him with singing. No matter what happens to this man, no true harm can befall him because he has an eternal inheritance and the always and forever love of God. In this dark world, there is no safe place except for that hope. Don't lose sight of that amidst the sentimentality of this season and amidst the wondrous delights that our technology and our riches have amassed for us. Pastor Wang Yi is awake to this in a way that we need to pay attention to. If you're wrestling with whether or not you should trust the living God, whether you should rejoice in him always, this God who will move heaven and earth to show you his love for you, can I invite you to say yes to him today? Can I invite you to say with Mary, let it be unto me as you have said. You will see the Lord rejoicing over you with singing. If you have never accepted Christ today, I'm available. The clergy of this church are available to talk to you about that. We invite you to come and talk to us about that. Come and find us after the service. Don't leave here without making that right. If you're already following Christ and you want to love his, know his love more deeply, come and talk to us. We want you to know the God who rejoices over you is singing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.